We continue in our study of the Shorter Catechism. This afternoon we're looking at question 59, which day of the seven hath God appointed to be the weekly Sabbath? Last week we looked at the fifth, or excuse me, the fourth commandment itself, which is the fourth commandment, and then what is required in the fourth commandment. Now we'll look at the day. What is the day appointed? So the answer begins, from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ, God appointed the seventh day of the week to be the weekly Sabbath. We read of this in Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in it he had rested from all his work, which God created and made. So there we see, right at the beginning of the world, God, by his own pattern of creating for six days his work, six days, and then resting on the seventh day, God sets that day apart, God blesses that, and then he says that he rested, because he had finished and completed all of his works. The works proceeded, the rest followed. Exodus chapter 16, verses 22 and 23, And it came to pass that on the sixth day... They gathered twice as much bread, two omers for one man, and all the rulers of the congregation came and told Moses. And he said unto them, This is that which the Lord hath said, Tomorrow is the rest of the holy Sabbath unto the Lord. Now there are some who are of the opinion that the fourth commandment concerning the rest that God appointed did not have its beginning until Sinai. So they think that at Sinai, God instituted a Sabbath. But prior to Mount Sinai, they believe, and their contention is, that God never instituted a Sabbath for man. And their reason for doing this is that they wish to make nine commandments out of the ten. They wish to turn those written with the finger of God into mere trifles or ceremonies, and that the fourth commandment concerning the Sabbath is not part of the law of nature, but rather just something God designed only for Israel. But you'll notice here a couple of things. One is God did this as a pattern for man. From the very beginning, he did this so that man could follow his example. So that's the first thing that says, well, that's a bit suspicious. The second thing that holds that in suspicion is that here, prior to Exodus 20, while they're still getting ready to go to Mount Sinai, they receive a commandment that they should gather on the sixth day twice as much as they would ordinarily need. Now, remember what happens with the manna is if you get it on one day and you leave it till the next day, Does it taste very good on the next day? It rots, doesn't it? It breeds worms. So they could not save their manna for the next day. But God gave a unique command that said, you save up two days on the sixth day, and I'll make sure that it doesn't breed worms or stink 
and you'll be able to eat it for two days, both the sixth day and the seventh day, so that you won't have to go out and gather on the Sabbath. And then he reminds them, Moses reminds them at God's appointment, tomorrow is the rest of the holy Sabbath unto the Lord. He's not saying this is something strange or unusual. He's saying this is something that they should know about, that there is a holy Sabbath, the rest of the holy Sabbath. That, that assumes that it's a well-known thing. You don't refer to a specific particular thing to people who have never heard of something. This isn't something brand new to the Israelites. Undoubtedly, it's something that they heard. If you trace out the genealogies, Adam had re- received the Sabbath. We know that because of the original creation order. Adam told his son, who lived on until the days of whenever, who lived on until the days of whenever. So all the generations up till Abraham, all you need are three generations of men to pass on the Sabbath. But in any case, it is a natural law. God says that he did it at the beginning. The Israelites knew about it before Exodus 20. And also, Jesus says that the Sabbath was made for man. He does not say the Sabbath was made for the Jews. He says the Sabbath was made for man, meaning it's a natural institution. It's part of man's ordinary condition of life. Okay, and then Exodus 20 itself, verse 11, says, In six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, and hallowed it. So here we see Exodus 20 verse 11 tells us that God institutes the Sabbath with Israel not based off of some new thing that just happened to them, but rather based off of the very oldest of things, God's original work of creation. So from the beginning of the world, in other words, this Sabbath was instituted by God for the benefit of mankind, and Israel receives it in a particular way in a special way, just like they receive all the other moral laws of God. Thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not kill, you shall have no other gods before me. All these are things that man knows by nature, but God gives them in a special way to Israel as their redeemer, as well as as their God and their lawgiver. And then we see in Luke chapter 23, verse 56, It says, and they returned and prepared spices and ointments. This is on Friday when our Lord was crucified. It says they prepared these things and then rested the Sabbath day according to the commandment. So this is the last time on which Jews will observe a Jewish Sabbath so far as lawfully. It will become illegitimate upon the resurrection of Christ. Okay, so the second part. From the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ, God appointed the seventh day of the week to be the weekly Sabbath and the first day of the week ever since to continue to the end of the world, which is the Christian Sabbath. Luke 24, verses 1 through 7. Now, upon the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came unto the sepulcher, bringing the spices which they had prepared and certain others with them. So this is what we read about in Luke 23, 56. They prepared the spices on Friday so they could rest on the Saturday or the Sabbath so that they could come on the first day of the week. Now, what's interesting is that this day 
that it's talking about is called the first of the Sabbaths. So you have at the end of the Sabbath and the first of the Sabbath, in other words. So the language that's used in the New Testament to refer to the first day of the week is to call it the first of the Sabbaths, the first Sabbath, in other words. And that's significant. The Jews used it to number their days by the Sabbath. So they would call the first day of the week as the first one from the Sabbath or moving away from the Sabbath. And then that would be the second of the Sabbath, the third of the Sabbath, the fourth of the Sabbath. But it's a reference to the beginning of the week, the first of the week. And we also notice here just something to think about um, very early in the morning. So at the beginning of the first day, that means that the first day did not start the evening before, as the Jews hypocritically profess that the days start when sun goes down. That's not how God reckons days throughout the Bible. God reckons the days as beginning in our ordinary time frame, 24 hours, midnight, being the beginning of the new day, and then early in the morning. If this were the Jews' idea, then when the sun went down on the night before, it would be the first day of the week. This would be halfway into the first day of the week, but it's not. It's very early on the first day of the week. So we have them coming, and what do they see? They see the stone rolled away, verse 2, and then verse 3, and they entered in and found not the body of the Lord Jesus. Then verse 5, they said unto them, this is the angel speaking to the women, Why seek ye the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spake unto you when he was yet in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. Okay, here it is. God, by his almighty work, created the world in six days and rested the seventh. Now, when our Lord Jesus Christ accomplished his great work, that is, the work of dying for the sins of his people, suffering under the wrath of God, bearing the sins of many, that's his great work. And the rest, when that is accomplished, when he looks back at it, is the first day of the week. That's his day of rest. When our Lord is loosed from the bonds of death, the grave no longer has power over him, He rises from the dead on the first day of the week. Just like God created all things and then rested, so Christ redeemed his people and then he rested. And this is why we call it the Lord's Day. This is why the scripture refers to it. Because it's marked out as the day of the Lord Jesus Christ in which he accomplished and looked back upon the work that he had accomplished and rested from it. Okay, Matthew 28, verse 1, in the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, or toward the first of the Sabbaths. This is the same phrase that's used in Luke, same in Mark, at the end of the Sabbath and toward the first of the Sabbaths. That's when Jesus, our Lord, rose from the dead. Now, in John chapter 20, it talks about the same thing, another parallel passage at the beginning of the week, first day of the week or the first of the Sabbaths. Then, in verse 19 of John 20, it says, The same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst, and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. So a couple of things to notice here. 
Uh, again, the Jewish superstition that a day begins when the sun go down, goes down is incorrect. They're meeting in the evening. That's after sundown. And it's still the first day of the week. Notice that? It's not the second day of the week now that the sun went down. It's still the first day of the week. But what are they doing? They're assembled. The disciples have assembled upon that first day of the week when Christ rose from the dead. Now, they did shut the doors for fear of the Jews. That's true. But their assembly occurs on the first day of the week. And the word assembly carries with it the idea of religious worship. Now, while they're in this posture of worship, on the first day of the week, Christ is present with them. I think this is very significant because it tells us when we can expect Christ to meet with us. He met with them on the first day of the week. And you find this eight days later, again, the first day of the week, Christ meets with them again. So he meets them at the resurrection, at the beginning of the day. He meets them while they're assembled together for worship at the end of the first day. In fact, the day of Pentecost takes place on the 50th day after the Passover, which is Saturday, which is the first day of the week. Again, when they're assembled in the upper room. So you see this pattern in the apostolic practice of meeting on the first day of the week. That's all I'm pointing out here. And then Acts chapter 20, same with the Gentile churches. Acts 20 verse 7. And upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow, and continued his speech until midnight. Then verse 11. When he therefore was come up again, and had broken bread, and eaten, and talked a long while, even until break of day, so he departed. Now you might think sometimes Pastor Brink is getting a little long-winded. Well, try sitting under Pastor Paul. <laughs> he preaches all the way till midnight. And this is pretty remarkable. Now, it could be they weren't going to see him very much. So it's a special occasion. So he makes the most of that special occasion. This wouldn't be an ordinary thing to do. But in any case, they're happy with it. They're, they're delighted with it. Notice when do they meet? They meet again, like the apostles, they assemble on the first day of the week. And what happens when they assemble? The breaking of bread and the preaching of the apostle Paul. So those are two things you notice here. The disciples come together. It's their day of ordinary congregation. The breaking of bread could be one of two things. It could be the Lord's table. And that could be a figure of speech referring to the whole Lord's table by one part of it. Or it could refer to the fellowship they had and their meals together. It's not, in my mind, it's not clear what exactly that's talking about. But we see them assembled for worship because Paul preaches unto them. Notice also that the Apostle Paul refrains from traveling on this day when the disciples meet for worship. That means that he considers it to be a holy day. A day for worship, not a day for travel. So he won't travel. But he'll continue in this action of religious congregation and worship all the way till the day ends, till midnight. That's when he's obliged to it. Now he may go on and do more, but his obligation ends there. And so it mentions midnight. And then in verse 11, it says that once the day breaks, he departs. Once he has light to travel, he goes because now he can travel. It's not the Sabbath anymore. He can move and, and take his journey. Okay, we see very similarly 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 and 2. 
Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye, upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store, as God hath prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. So a couple of things here about this specific passage. One is, he's writing to the Corinthian church, which is a collection of churches in the region of Achaia. It's not just one congregation. It's a whole bunch of churches. Both 1st and 2nd Corinthians are to the churches of Achaia broadly considered, Corinth being the principal city. And when he writes to these Achaian churches, he tells them about the orders that he gave to the other Gentile churches, namely those in Galatia. So if you have the two principal churches of the Gentiles, those of Achaia and those of Galatia, and they all observe one order, then you would, you would say this is the apostolic practice for the Gentile churches. If you wanted to make an exception for the Jews for a time, you could, although we've already seen the Jews met on the first day of the week. But if you wanted to say Gentile churches should observe which day, it would be the first day of the week. And there are a couple of things that are of interest here. One, it is the day where they come together. Okay, this is an ecclesiastical order for the first day of the week, collection for the saints. The second is that God prospered them not by their labors on the first day. He's actually saying, when you come bring what God has prospered and give of that prosperity. So that means they're working on which days? The other days, aren't they? They're not going to work on the first day of the week. They've already worked on the other six days. God prospered them in those days and they bring of that prosperity so that there wouldn't need to be Paul overseeing giving while he's there. They've already set it aside. They've already laid it in store. They've already been prospered and they come together on the first day of the week as the other Gentile churches do and lay up a collection for the saints. This is a very powerful thing. People say, well, the Romanists like to say that the church ordained the Christian Lord's Day as the first day of the week, not God. And the reason why they say that is, if God didn't ordain it, then that means the church has the power to ordain holy days. And in order to excuse all their other trash that they've brought into the worship of God and say all this is acceptable, they try to say that the New Testament doesn't teach the Lord's Day. We made that up. So they can arrogate power to themselves. But it's obvious that when Christ raised himself from the dead, when the apostles gathered together on the first day, when the Gentile churches are told that they ought to lay up in store as God has prospered them in the rest of the week so that they can bring together their offerings on the first day and that this is an order universally applicable to all the Gentile churches. And when you see Paul preaching when the disciples assemble on the first day, and he preaches all the way till midnight and he won't travel on that day and they come together to break bread. What do you call that? You call it a Sabbath day. Okay, and then we see in Matthew twenty four twenty, our Lord, we looked at this last week. Pray ye that your flight be not on the Sabbath day. That means there remaineth a Sabbath observance to the people of God as we see in Hebrews 4. But here notice again, on the Sabbath day, there will be a, a Sabbath after the resurrection of Christ. It will not be the natural Sabbath because the natural order is you work for first and then you receive your rest second. 
The gospel order is you receive your rest first and then you do your works after your rest. You could say that the covenant of works is built into the original Sabbath because Adam had to work first and then he got his reward upon his works. And the gracious covenant is built into the Christian Sabbath. You receive your reward first because Christ has been risen on that day and then your works follow. That's how Christianity works. And so it illustrates the principle of law versus grace by the type of Sabbath that we have. So if someone wants to take you back to a Jewish Sabbath, they also want to take you back to work first and then you receive your rest second, which is why we don't observe a Jewish Sabbath, but we still observe a Sabbath. All right, Mark chapter 2, 27 and 28. The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. Christ teaches a Sabbath. He is a Lord of the Sabbath. And also, man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for man. And that's important to distinguish. Not for the Jews was the Sabbath created, but for man. Are you a man? If you say yes, then the Sabbath is for you. If you say, no, the Sabbath isn't for me, that means you're not human. That's what he's saying. You cannot be a proper human being without a Sabbath because God made it for our blessing, for our good, so that we can commune with him in a special way when we're not encumbered with other things. Now, I just put here uh, a theologian from the 4th, 5th century, Gregory of Nyssa. He has an oration on the resurrection of Christ. He says, From the Sabbath acknowledge thou this present Sabbath, that is the Lord's day, this day of rest which God hath blessed above other days. For in this, the only begotten Son of God did truly rest from all his works. If you were inclined to try to figure out what did the early church up until like the 7th century when they started worshiping idols, what did they think about the Lord's Day? You would find that they were, you might say, puritanical because that's the later slur that's put upon it is that, oh, you're a Puritan on the Sabbath, on the fourth commandment. But you'll find that the early church very consistently saying that we as Christians don't observe a man-made holy day. No, we have a Sabbath of the Lord our God. And that the apostles observed this first day of the week as the Christian Sabbath because of the resurrection of Christ. So we don't have a Jewish Sabbath. In fact, one of the interesting things you'll find in the church fathers is when they describe how the Jews observed the Sabbath, it's very much like modern Christians observe the Lord's Day. They, were, they talk about dancing, drinking, feasting as the activities of the Jews, a frivolous, light, and pleasure-seeking day. That's how the Jews of those days used to observe their Sabbath. And they say, we as Christians ought not to observe a Sabbath like the Jews and dancing and drinking, seeking our own pleasures, but in the pursuit of the knowledge of God. Because it's not about idleness, as we'll look at in the next couple of questions. The Sabbath isn't about being idle. God actually added labors for the priests on the Sabbath. They had to do a morning and evening sacrifice every day. Then on the Sabbath, they had to do two in the morning and two in the evening. So it had nothing to do with being less encumbered with work, it had to do with ceasing from your own labors, 
from your own works so that you could be occupied in the holy labor, the holy work of God's worship and the knowledge of God and growing in grace and understanding your faith and in practicing and applying your faith. Those are the things God wants us to be engaged in on the Lord's day. So from the beginning of the world, God ordained this natural Sabbath in order to teach us that we must work before we receive rest. And having become convicted that we cannot do our works properly or rest in ourselves, God sent his only begotten son to die for our sins, to accomplish the work of our redemption so that we then could rest in him. And that's what the resurrection is all about. It's about the rest that we find in Christ. It's about the inheritance that we have in him and the Sabbath being the ultimate instance on earth of the inheritance that we will have in heaven. It follows then that on the day of Christ's resurrection, that's when we as Christians observe our Sabbath. Okay, let's pray.